I'm Erica Ducey. I'm Felicity Carter. And you're listening to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping drinks businesses grow and thrive. Whether you're in wine, beer, or spirits, or the non-alcoholic drink space, we've got you covered. We take a holistic approach to drinks, looking at new business opportunities and the products and categories that get customers excited. Thanks for joining us, and let's dive in. Today, we're doing something unusual. We get asked a lot about how different parts of the drinks world works, from distribution to drinks investments. And there's one part of the industry that a lot of people don't know about, but they should. It's like an entire segment of the industry that's hiding in plain sight, and that's the bulk wine market. Now, for wine companies or really any startups that are hoping to source wine for RTDs or other products, it's crucial to understand how this segment of the business works. And frankly, it's just pretty fascinating. So our guest today is Florian Cheshi. He's the European director for Ciati, which is one of the world's biggest bulk wine brokers. And before we get into that, let's level set. Felicity, can you define what bulk wine is? Sure. So bulk wine is the engine room of the wine industry, but it's like catching a cruise ship. You don't go down below deck to check out how the whole thing is powered. It's unknown by most people, but it's fascinating. The most important thing to know is that the term bulk wine refers to the way that wine is shipped. It doesn't tell you anything about the quality of that wine. Right. And it's a shipping method, but most of it is commodity wine. Is that correct? Yes. It's mostly destined for something called private label, which is something we'll explain in a moment. But basically, there are three types of bulk wine. There's overflow wine, where you get a winery that might have produced more grapes than they want or more wine than they need in a given year. And uh, when they have these years of oversupply, this wine can be extremely high quality. Sometimes they sell it because they don't want to damage their own sale by releasing too much wine onto the market. Then there's wines that are produced by wine wineries that don't have the capacity to bottle it and market it. And again, these can be wineries that produce wonderful wine, but they're just too small to invest in all of the capital investment intensive equipment they need, or maybe they don't want to. And then there's what you're referring to, which is the commodity wine, which is pretty ordinary wine, though generally technically well-made, which is created and sold for the specific purpose of supplying the needs of brands and other wineries. 50% of all the wine produced in Europe, for example, is made by cooperatives. And a lot of this is destined for the bulk wine market. Right. And so what Felicity is referring to is wine being shipped in flexi tanks. So these are massive storage container size vessels. It's made of food grade polyethylene in most cases or other non-porous materials. But you can think of them as these big flexible bladders inside of a shipping container. That's right. And while most people think of bulk wine as being part of the cheap end of the market, bulk shipping is actually more environmentally friendly and it's better for the wine than being shipped in bottles. So the big question is, who's buying the bulk wine and what are they doing with it? Right. So that's where a private label comes in. Sometimes really big brands will buy bulk wine to ensure that they can keep up with demand. But a lot of bulk goes into private label, which are brands created by companies that plan on selling them. So that could be hotels or restaurant chains or retailers who are bottling their own wine because it generates higher percentages, higher margins than buying branded wine at wholesale. You can think of it like a home brand. So Florian has a lot of insights that he shares 
shares into who buys it and why. Yes, and I should say that a lot of wine clubs are actually using bulk wine. They often call it exclusive and it's exclusive because they've made the brand up themselves because it's so profitable. Now, I should interject at this point and tell the world that we, Erica and I, are complete bulk wine experts. We were judges of the bulk wine competition at the World Bulk Wine Exhibition in Amsterdam last year. Yeah, and it, it was very fascinating to see the range of wines that we were tasting. Some of them were at the very low end that I don't think got very good scores at all, but some of them were really quite good and would be passable or even metal worthy. That's right at other wine competitions that I've judged. So that was fascinating. But I think, you know, as I've talked about before, one of the things that is most interesting to me about the bulk wine world is how transparent it is. So there's no smoke and mirrors like you find in other parts of wine. It is a very no BS business. It's like, here are the prices. Here are the farming details that were used to grow the grapes. Here are the adjustments that were made to this wine. So when you're dealing with wine that might cost as little as 30 euro cents a liter, there's no time for romance and magic. That's true. But we actually found some of that too, because there were a surprising number of organic producers exhibiting at the fair. And we even found a biodynamic producer from Spain. That was so interesting. And I think what is also important for everyone to realize is that the bulk wine market represents about 70% of the entire global wine market. So that is a lot of juice. And for people who want to create a brand of their own but don't have a winery, this is something that they need to know about. That's right. So now it's time to hear Florian explain it. And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At The Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap, compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Florian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to see you again. Last time we saw you, Florian, was just a couple of weeks ago at the Bulk Wine Show in Amsterdam, which was such uh, an exciting show in many ways that we'll get into. But yeah, let's hop right into some questions. Right. So first of all, can you explain what the bulk wine market is? Does it just mean wine that's shipped in bulk or does it mean a specific type of wine? So... Um... It's not a specific wine. As I told you, it's kind of, uh, for me, it's the pure definition of how the wine is produced. Then anybody can decide the way they want to fill that or pack that. Actually, in the bulk business where we are operating on a daily basis, we can even uh, deal with uh, really entry-level wines that are sold at uh, less than 30 cents per liter, 30 euro cents per liter, that will be sold for vinegar business or for really entry, entry-level uh, programs. And on the high end, uh, I've been selling this week uh, Chateauneuf-du-Pape as bulk for more than uh, 13 euros per liter. 
there's not necessarily, I mean, uh, bulk doesn't mean that it's uh, crap. Yeah. It's just a commodity and a way to operate between um, companies. And yeah, and if there was a definition for bulk, I would say that uh, the main definition, it's uh, volume or volume-wise. It means that it's uh, most of the time sold in between uh, companies. It's not something that you can buy as a as an individual and going to the supermarket and buy. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, as we learned at the bulk wine show, you know, it's, it seems like about more than 70% of the wine that moves through the market is actually bulk. And bulk really in that definition is, you know, wine that is shipping in a bulk format, right? So it's not necessarily a judgment of the wine or the quality or, you know, any anything like that. It's really more of like a format of how the wine is shipping, one. And then two, that it's one company selling to another company. Is that accurate? It's exactly that. And uh, it's funny, actually, after our discussion and the article that was published, I've been called by uh, different people afterwards asking me, ah, we are interested by that, but uh, what is the minimum volume that we could buy? And I said, I would say that probably the, the minimum quantity for transaction and to guarantee also the, the quality of the product will be probably this kind of uh, metallic palette of containing 1,000 liters. That would be really, really the minimum volume when we are talking about uh, shipping uh, and selling bulk. Tell us, who produces bulk wine? And why would a producer choose to go the bulk sales route instead of making a branded wine? There are several explanations for that. I mean, we have uh, suppliers with who we work, meaning producers, who are doing 100% of their sales as bulk. The best example for that, being in the south of France, for instance, is all these co-ops with who we work. For a large part of them, 90% of their total production is uh, dedicated to be sold as bulk. When we speak about companies that are doing more than uh, 10 million liters. So, so just off the top of my head, that's about uh, 2,900,000. Yeah, Felicity can come in with the conversions. So let's say a large co-op, so meaning a group of growers who needs to put together the crushing material and all the, the winemaking material and to convert the grapes into wine. Then it becomes a large volume of wine that they are producing and they don't necessarily have the capacity to put that on the market and sell that as a case good. That will be probably a first indication or a first answer. Then second one, it can be single estates who have the capacity to sell on their own X percent of their wines under their uh, their programs, so their bottles or bagging box. But for some reason, they may not have the capacity to sell the rest like this. So they will ask brokers or deal direct with uh, bottlers to buy the rest of their uh, of their production so it can be a decision it can be also sometimes a choice made by the weather conditions the let's say if you have a, a larger crop this year versus the the vintage of the previous one you are probably forced to do that or you have been losing a client and you who was buying a large portion of your of your production, you need to, to find a new home for that and you will decide to sell that as bulk. There's plenty of, uh, of explanation of factors uh, behind, uh, behind that, actually. So who buys bulk wine and what do they do with it? So our buyers are most of the time 
They have a negotiation status to operate as a buyer of wine. They can be, in some options, they can be growers too. So meaning they may have their own production, but for several reasons, they are selling more than what they are producing. So they may come on the bulk market and look after uh, different qualities to what they have to build up a larger uh, range, or they can actually extend their existing range with something similar that they will buy on the market to fulfill their, their needs. Or it can be just negotiant bottlers that they are strong or they are good to sell, but they don't have any production on the behind. So I mean, they are just going on the market and operating under their own brand or under a brand that will be asked by their clients. So I mean, that's uh, the options are kind of multiple in both uh, sides, actually. When you say negotiant bottler, are you talking about people who create private labels for supermarkets, people like that? For me, a negotiant is more a general definition of a buyer, I would say. So meaning it can be, it can be a large group who owns a brand or different brands and want to have, uh, to supply the wine to come under this brand and under this appellation and our varietal, uh, I mean, there's plenty of, uh, of things that they will have to, uh, to make it uh, matched. Or it can be just uh, bottling companies who are answering to tenders from supermarket chains to tenders coming from uh, monopolies uh, countries like Scandinavian, for instance. Or it can be different, uh, different options. I mean, sometimes it's kind of difficult to explain to people that kind of job and what's behind the reality of the, the broker or the, the wine business because you have many people in between the producer and the final consumer. And this is all the reality of, uh, of this business that you are actually yeah, explaining in your, in your podcast or in your articles. Yeah. You know, I'm interested to know, we've been talking a lot about uh, canned products like RTDs. So that could be anything from like, you know, canned spritzes, like a wine-based spritz to, you know, a spirits-based product. But I'm curious to know, are you starting to see more and more buyers come to you for these products that are not wine only. So maybe it's not just a straight canned rosé, but instead it's they're looking to make a spritz or they're looking to make a non-alcoholic wine. Are you starting to see more and more of that? Yeah, definitely. And actually in all these uh, wine coolers or let's say this cocktail business, you really see that you are opening wider the possibilities of winemaking and wine sourcing in general. Because when you were asking me about who are the buyers of bulk wine, most of the time they have, let's say, behind the brand, there's most of the time a, a varietal, then there's an appellation or country of origin. But uh, in front of that, when we speak about these uh, wine coolers, this anything where wine is just a component and on the, on the legal uh, mandatory aspects of the, the labeling, you for a wine cocktail you just need to justify that 50 percent at least of your product comes from wine but you don't need to 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 say and to write where it was coming from what was the country of origin what was the, the varietal so most of the time it's opening on a larger scale or let's say almost on a global scale the possibilities for those buyers to choose what's the best in terms of availability, quantity, logistic point of view, meaning uh, how much will it be costing to deliver that to my bottling plant. So we see on some 
part of our business a growth and more interest on that. But we were talking uh, together about trends and uh, fashions. We have experienced that in France seven or eight years ago with a large trend that stayed for probably four to five years called the grapefruit rosé wines. The aromatized wine, this thing was just booming, becoming really super important and then almost disappeared or remained really small. But to give you an idea, it's something similar to other uh, products that you may know under uh, Sangria name, under uh, Gluvine or Glog uh, in Scandinavia. I mean, it's something different, but that has been always existing that sometimes pop-ups, goes down. and uh, But it's definitely something where probably the wine industry should get more attention because when we speak about understanding what are the possibility to bring the new generation to wine, I think that we shouldn't consider that kind of segment as something uh, bad or with a, a lower kind of image. For me, it's also a way to show that uh, yeah, you can mix wine with other components and you can make something that's probably as good and uh, we've also a good image for our business too so i remember when that trend was big in europe and i had to do endless tastings of things that were infused with fruit flavors some of which were more successful than others speaking of successful or not uh, what at the moment are the most desirable varieties on the bulk wine market and what is hard to shift i will say that in general one of the challenge that the the wine industry is facing is uh, the change in between the colors of the wine that are on one side produced and on the other side consumed. Meaning that we have uh, a larger part of the, the production under uh, produced as red when the consumption has been growing a lot on the white and also the rosé. This is on a larger scale. Then we can get deeper and, uh, and more precise on the on some varietals that are more popular than others. But in general, we see that there's a shift between the, the old image of uh, wine that was uh, traditional red wine, let's say at 12% or 13% alcohol. And now we are going more to a definition that's going more on the, under uh, uh, a fresh white wine. So that's probably one of the big changes that, that we are seeing. I will say that another thing is probably going on the two opposite directions, but that can be complementary. One is probably going lighter in alcohol. So that was this discussion about uh, the no and low uh, categories that are, which is growing. But also it can be on other products that are richer, higher in alcohol, higher in sugar. So I mean, it's a uh, it will be kind of stupid to just summarize the wine business under uh, everything turns to white and uh, it's so diverse and it's so wide that uh, we see different things uh, popping up. And uh, as a basic, keep in mind the story that uh, we were, uh, the wine industry was really uh, strong and bigger in red production and now it's going more to, it's not balanced yet, but uh, in general, red is going down, rosé and white are going up. And are there specific regions that are really popping or that seem to be slowing down? I don't know if it's about region because talking about regions, it really depends on where you are standing. Of course, if the people who are listening to that are in the U.S., depending on, on which area of the U.S. they are, they will have more experience about uh, European wines if they are on the East Coast, for instance, and more on uh, 
Californian wines or I don't know Oregon or, or Washington State if they are on the, the West Coast. And uh, again, uh, when you are in Europe, for instance, if you are in uh, in France, you go in a supermarket chain or in a wine shop, you won't probably see almost any foreign reference in front of you. Most of the countries who are producing and large country uh, producing, they are preserving their uh, and they are trying to promote more their their own production. It's really difficult to say what's on fashion or which country is going better than others. It depends where you are standing. But, and one thing that reminds me that I forgot to, to mention, sparkling. I was talking about the steel wines in general and forgetting about sparkling. We clearly see that sparkling has been uh, growing a lot over the last uh, years too. That's uh, we Right now, we are a few days before Christmas. This is the hot uh, moment to buy and sell uh, champagne, uh, Prosecco, Cava, I mean, anything which is sparkling is, uh, yeah, is something that you are expecting to drink to make uh, celebrations in uh, with families or friends. So. so what I'd like to ask you about is, is what happens to a lot of bulk wine. Now, we know that a lot of it goes into private label. Can you discuss what private label is and how much of the market this represents? And also, the other side of this is when people do make private label, how do they make it consistent given that they have to come back to the market every year and buy more wine? So private label is a, a large subject because it could either be a controlled label or a private label owned by a supermarket chain or anything like that. So the for me, the definition of private label is something which is made by someone else, by a third party. In some occasions, this private label they can be produced at uh, at the final consumer place or they can be fully controlled from the selection of the bulk and all the dry goods by the seller. To answer your question about the proportion of the private label in the market, I remember that I saw a figure a few years ago that was uh, in between 30 and 50%. But And it, it really depends on the different markets. But I think when I was reading that, it was about uh, the US market. But I, I may be wrong. I will be actually curious if you find information to get access to, to that. We will let you know. About this uh, private label, about the consistency, I would say that at, at the end, it's returning to the consistency of uh, keeping the same uh, style or the same profile to the wine that you are putting in your under your brand. And this is where most of the bottlers or even the buyers, they need to have good enologists or winemakers to understand or to make the wine consistent over the years, or also to lock and control the sourcing of these wines, because each year can be different. If you are in a vintage where you have too much wine, meaning that you will have a lot of options on the market, it may be considered an easier year for the analogies, for the winemaker or slash buyer to, to source all these different options which won't be the case if you are in a kind of really complicated uh, vintage with uh, lower volumes and also qualities that will be not matching your expectations. So this is actually where you need to have a good... Uh, the winemaker is like the, the chef in a restaurant. Let's say the owner of the restaurant will define with the chef uh, what are the different plates or the menu that they, they want to, to offer to their clients. And the chef, like the winemaker, they are there to make sure that they repeat always the same recipe and make something consistent. Sometimes I don't like to explain that this way because it will leave the romantic 
piece of the, the wine, but in general, a winemaker is a good blender of wine. He will be able actually to understand what tank will make a better match with the others to have exactly the, the product that he had in his mind uh, or that he has been uh, bottling the, the year before. I want to ask about the process, really, uh, like the process of working with a company like Ciotti. So Felicity and I were at the Bulk Wine Show and we went to the Ciotti booth and everyone that we spoke with was so knowledgeable. And then in talking with you, learned that a lot of the salespeople are actually enologists and are well qualified to be able to give advice on how to put together certain products. So for example, if I say like, hey, I want to do a canned white wine and I love Sicilian whites. I love that minerally profile. You know, what are the options for me? Take me through. Let's pretend that I am the client here. I want to make, you know, wine in can. It's going to be a minerally white. Take me through the process of how I would work with you. Yeah. So basically we are a kind of translator or technology technical translator. On one side, we need to have the technical knowledge because we are in between growers, producers, and buyers. As we were talking about earlier, they are enologists or winemakers. So these guys, they will explain us the profile or the style that they want. And sometimes they can be really going deep in the details with uh, asking about a specific uh, total acidity or ABV uh, or even, I don't know, uh, sweetness or definition of what they are expecting in terms of uh, aromas. And on the other side, we will be trying to understand where are these options, where can we find these options through all the wines that we are we are tasting, through all the, the, uh, the, the different uh, producers with who, with who we are dealing. And then going deeper in or more specific about this uh, project or the question that you are asking if someone starts asking me i want this uh, really fresh uh, white to 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 fill my can i would like this uh, pinot grigio from the north of italy and we will be asking questions like this for instance will you be using the varietal name on your can they will say ah yeah it's really important because we want to be recognized as a pinot grigio and not having only the style so we'll say no so probably that's going to be complicated because for instance, Pinot Grigio Doc delle Venezie can be sold as bulk, but by uh, legal reasons, you need to stick this uh, fascetta, this uh, neck label actually around the, the bottle. So mm. a, a can program won't be uh, an option for you. Interesting. So we will be also there to remind them what are the background legally talking, what are the laws or let's say this example of Italy was kind of good because let's get back to Sicily. Many of the, the appellations in general from Italy are trying to preserve the bottling in the region. Or if it's not in the region, it can be done outside of the region, most of the time still in, uh, in Italy, but just because of uh, a special permit that are given because of interiority of bottling. And, uh, and that's why you may get uh, uh, some Prosecco that will be bottled in uh, Piemonte because it has been done for the last, uh, I don't know, uh, decades. But for instance, in Sicily, if you want to have a Grillo, which is sold as Doc Sicilia, a Grillo can't be bottled outside of the this region. So, so we will be exchanging with the buyers depending on their level of knowledge. And um, we will tell them now, nah, probably you need to go probably more on this kind of option. If you don't want the varietal, try to look at a Fiano, try to look at uh, other whites from uh, Sicily to make it happen. 
But uh, are you happy if the price point, instead of being, I don't know, uh, 70 or 80 cents per liter that you had in mind, it will be probably 1 euro 20. Is it still an option for you? Or what's driving all this, uh, this process? Are you looking at only the quality or do you have to also match the price point that, that you had uh, from the, the early stage in mind for to be compliant with what you had, uh, what you want to put on the market? So that, that will be that kind of uh, exchange that we will have with the, the buyers. And then from this step, we start being more precise in terms of uh, options, written options. And then we say, okay, now that we agree on that, we will start sampling you different uh, different wines from different uh, people and you will taste and you will tell us if it's uh, suitable or, or not for you. I want to follow up there because I was so impressed by how transparent this part of the business really was. So once you actually go down the sampling route, then you can find out, right, who the producer is, where exactly the grapes are being grown, and is down to the level of detail of all of the adjustments that have been made in that wine, the specific farming regimen, etc. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. And actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, right now we are at few months to a big change in Europe with the a new rule for labeling the wines, uh, meaning uh, you will have to, to mention all the addings that have been done. So actually, you, you, you get to the point. We are exactly at this level of uh, being precise. The bulk is sometimes seen as the hidden side of the industry, of the wine industry, but actually we are much more open than the rest for the people who are working in, in this part, because especially as brokers, we give access to who's the supplier, who's the buyer. They can be in straight contact together. They can meet together. I mean, we see our value-added at a higher level than just uh, uh, keeping for us the secret of uh, who's making what and, uh, you know, and trying to hide that. I think our value added is more on a kind of uh, intelligence level, expert level, and I would say also logistic level to speed up the process of uh, the selection, the sustainability of the wines, better access to the market and understanding what are the trends or the dynamics. So, I mean, it's uh, it's fun because, yeah, probably for me, bulk is more transparency than uh, what people can, uh, can expect or think about. I just want to jump in. You mentioned farming practices. And one of the things that was really surprising is at the Bulk Wine Fair, there are a lot of producers who were selling organic and even biodynamic wines. Now, I know in, in Europe, a lot of producers have been told to move to more sustainable practices in order to get a better price for their grapes. Is that happening? Do they get a better price if they go organic and biodynamic? And can they make more money on the bulk wine market? So I think it's not about the money in general, this trend. It was also coming from, a, I think, ideal choice for some of them, a future choice that will be not a choice, actually, that will be not an option anymore. I mean, you know that... Uh, Specifically in Europe, the, the areas where the vineyard is located, you have sometimes at few blocks distance, you have people living there. And we know that actually the old way of farming using uh, pesticides or other products is not an option anymore on the long run. Because we know that there will be more and more fight about that, more and more fight also about uh, irrigation, adding uh, water. It's more a kind of way to make the production more sustainable for the future, but also for people living around this, uh, this industry. Of course, it was a niche market when it started. 
and it's costing more actually to grow in a sustainable way or in an organic way a vineyard than uh, in a conventional way. So this extra cost was at a certain stage also brought back to the growers. And when the market was unbalanced between production and consumption or the demand and the, the offer, there was a higher price uh, offered to the, to the growers. So somehow it brought a lot of attraction it brought a lot uh, more of uh, of growers to to jump into this new ca category to uh, let's say they were probably starving and they were having hard time to sell their wines when it was conventional and they were seeing their neighbors doing extremely well uh, as organic so they they decided actually to 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 change and go in this uh, direction Unfortunately, over the last years, we are seeing a more balanced uh, situation between uh, offer and demand in, uh, in organic too. And also a kind of issues with the, the capacity of the final consumer to spend more to buy uh, organic wines. And especially in those days where inflation is strong, where I don't know, you, you clearly see that wine is not uh, a first need uh, product when you are doing your shopping, your daily shopping. So, I mean, this trend that was really growing of organic now is becoming stable and we can expect actually a kind of uh, slowdown and uh, also growers that won't be able to survive with that because they won't be able to hit the price of their uh, cost price and they will have to sell in between their, uh, their cost and uh, the price of a conventional wine, which means that on the long run, it's not going to be uh, sustainable for them. So it was growing a lot, but I think that for, I would say, inflation reasons, but also the fact that it was a niche and the niche grew that much that at the end there was not uh, space anymore for the people who were there. So I mean, and I don't know what will be the next step for this uh, organic uh, category for the wine, because I keep thinking that uh, it's sustainable and it's good for not only for the planet and for the people who are living not that uh, far from the, the vineyards, but it's all about uh, Will the market will be able actually to absorb and make this uh, shift in terms of uh, of budget that they have to spend? Exactly. Even if the if the prices start to even out for something that costs more to produce, how is that going to be a sustainable business model? That's that seems like a big question. So staying on that topic of money for a minute, since we love to talk about money on this podcast, help us understand how are prices set on the bulk market? I was talking about offer and demand. If we had to really summarize, I would say that that's it. On a larger scale, this is exactly that. If you are producing uh, generic reds or whites, meaning that there's not any big distinctions between the rest of the, the production, and you are only having clients that... Uh, will buy your wines to make these wine cocktails, as we were mentioning earlier. They can choose actually between uh, your production in, uh, let's say you are in California, in Central, uh, Central Valley, or you are in uh, Spain, or you can be in Australia. Yeah, you will be just uh, choose like this. I mean, it's not, uh, it will be the offer and demand, and, and meaning if there's a, a global surplus of wine this year, you know that actually the price will keep going down because there won't be space for all of you. On the other side, if you are, let's say, a Napa grower and you know that uh, this appellation is kind of small, there are still a, a big demand. You are not targeting the clients who are drinking uh, cans and only spending a few bucks per, uh, you know, per, per glass, but uh, 
people who have uh, the capacity to spend more. Here, it's all about how much can they, yeah, how much can they spend and uh, at what point uh, can they can they go? For me, the price is mainly driven by that. It's uh, the history of your appellation. The it can be the trend of the fashion on some on some varietals, for instance, that can have an impact on that. Yeah, it can be a short crop versus uh, a big crop. It can be uh, an economic context that can have uh, this impact on the price. I mean, it's kind of large. And at the end, it's also getting back to the brands that we were talking about. That's the strength of the brand. I'm always amazed knowing what's behind the labels when I go in some supermarkets to see the same grower with who I'm dealing, who's probably selling 90% of his wine as bulk. He's selling the 10% uh, outstanding under his label at uh, a certain price. And you see next to that, in the same category, a famous uh, brand who's buying probably a certain amount of uh, coming straight from this grower, but blended with other wines, which is selling at three, four, five times more. And I mean, we realize that uh, that's probably also the beauty of the, the wine business is that uh, sometimes you are not really appreciating or tasting the wine or spending the, the, the value of the, the product you are spending for the strength of the, the brand, the moment where you are drinking that, uh, you know, it's... Uh... Speaking of uh, excess and consumption, the OIV said this was the lowest production in, I think, 60 years. So this year we've got low production meeting lower consumption, but that's not going to hold true for a while. So we've got a lot of stress happening in great regions like Spain, France, Australia. A lot of growers are selling at unsustainably low prices. What do you see ahead for those growers? Do you think a lot of people are going to have to exit the market or do you think this is just a blip that they'll get over? It was something that was expected uh, more or less. We know that uh, some growers will exit the market as we are mentioning, but it's not necessarily happening this year. It was something that was uh, starting uh, a long time ago. But uh, once again, we need to put back under the economic uh, conditions that we are living on uh, right now. I mean, we have been crossing uh, COVID. We have been crossing uh, new uh, conflicts in between countries. When I mean conflicts, it can be political conflicts, but it can be also uh, real wars. So, I mean, it, it's something that if you go back to this uh, analyze of what happened over the last 60 years, we are probably arriving in a kind of... Uh, really specific context at the moment. So, I mean, it's also, if it was in normal years and all the conditions were great, maybe we will have a, a kind of jump back afterwards. But I think that now we are heading in a more uh, complicated uh, conditions or context at the moment. And we have growers that have been uh, on some regions that have been suffering for a while. So, I mean, you were mentioning Australia, for instance, Australia, they are in a bad situation probably from November or December 2019, when the golden gates of the Chinese market got closed in front of them. But before they were selling like uh, like hell and at uh, a really high price. So, I mean, things have been changing on a short period of time. But on the other end, we had people that were for the last decades, they knew that their business model won't be uh, sustainable on the long run because we have this globalization on the players which is happening for either the for the buyers, for the, the negotiations or the, the owners of brands. But on the other side, it's also happening with the growers and the productions. We see 
more and more estates or co-ops that have to merge together to have a, a better capacity to control their cost. So, I mean, it, it's something which was, uh, it was expecting. Of course, now with these new conditions, there's plenty of new scenarios that can happen in front of us. But we are definitely sure that uh, next year will be the figures given by uh, OIV will be even worse than what they are in terms of production. And without talking about climatic uh, accidents, we know that actually many vineyards, many countries are uprooting a large, a significant amount of vine everywhere. So, I mean, so that's going to be, yeah, we may experience a new world where wine will become, uh, I don't know, will become probably more a luxury product when it used to be something that was uh, with uh, easier access for many, many people. But really few of them had uh, this understanding that it was easy and cheap and they will probably realize that, uh, yeah, it's going to change and at a, at a much higher level. So a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs who are interested in developing their own products. So can you give me a sense, if someone was to come and work with Ciade and want to start to spec out what uh, bulk wine pricing looks like, what would be something at the low end, like a price at the low end for, you know, a more generic wine versus like the very high end? And then also, what opportunities do you see for them? You know, imagine that you're giving advice to entrepreneurs right now. You, this is where probably we are the only company assisting that on a global uh, uh, level. We have these uh, 10 offices all around the world all uh, with people like me, meaning that these brokers working there, they are people experienced in, the, in this industry for at least 10 years minimum, when it's not uh, 25 to 30 years. So they know exactly how to answer to the questions of the entrepreneurs, meaning producers on one side or buyers on the others, and understand what are, what are their expectations, what are the markets, where they want to go. And I mean, and give them that kind of advice. So, I mean, in this company, my value added is uh, for the growers who are working next to me or the buyers who want to have a special vision of the, let's say, the French market. But the value added of the, the group is this uh, this capacity of adding the all this uh, experience and knowledge that we have uh, from one part of the world to the other. So, I mean, if uh, someone in the US wants to launch... Uh, an Italian Pinot Grigio, he will be discussing with uh, someone from my uh, Californian office. They will be discussing together. My colleague will uh, send me the request or put me in contact with this guy just to understand also what are the few things that are missing to, to start uh, working on this project. And this is where actually we have a chance to build up and, and summarize what can be done. So, I mean, that's the... And for the people who are who are not experienced with that, who are probably kind of concerned and they don't want to, to give a call, we are publishing every month this uh, global report, uh, which is uh, where you can get access actually on our website or through LinkedIn or through other, uh, other channels. And in this report, you can have already a kind of picture about what's going on in each of these uh, producing countries, what are the prices for all the different categories. It's not the wool encyclopedia with all the precise appellation written, but if they want to be really specific, we are there on a second stage to be, yeah, to be called or to be, to be emailed. And we are there to help them uh, in their projects. Because I mean, our clients are all these people 
on one side grower or buyers who need to have a kind of service of uh, yeah I'm selling wine but I'm selling more expertise or intelligence than than wine in general that's the this is our value added Right. So um, that's the end of our questions. And uh, that was a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much for taking us uh, through the bulk wine market. I think a lot of people will be surprised to find out how it functions. So thank you very much. Thank you uh, for the invitation. That was great. I hope that my uh, accent will be understood in the correct way for, for your listeners. But, uh, but thanks again. It was a, a great moment and a great experience for me. So, Erica, time for last call, which is always my favorite bit when I find out about these amazing drinks that you're trying. What amazing thing have you discovered this time? Well, today I've got something from your side of the pond. No. <laughs> so I've got another non-alk pick called Three Spirit, and this is their bottling called Social. So Three Spirit is a London-based company that creates non-alcoholic, functional, and mood-enhancing drinks. And the company is women and BIPOC-led, and it focuses on ethical sourcing uh, for the 60 different plants that it uses from around the world. And it was created by three friends who wanted a so-called third way, thus the three of them as founders in the name, and then also the third way of drinking, which is third way of not sober, not alcoholic drinks, but a new type of social drinking. Uh, so this product, Social, it's advertised as having these mood-elevating properties. It does have a lot of functional ingredients like lion's mane mushrooms, yerba mate, Tulsi, cacao, and Damiana. And all of those have different sort of properties. Some are energizing, some are relaxing. And the question I think probably on your mind is, how does it taste? So dark berries and plums are the first notes that I get in this richly spiced sort of bittersweet drink. And the company recommends mixing it with ginger ale as a long drink, but I've really been enjoying it mixed with soda water. So even mixed with soda, it has some nice weight to it. It really sips as if it were an alcohol containing cocktail. The only difference is that it doesn't have that burn. So it wasn't surprising to me, given how tasty this drink is that it's used now in hundreds of restaurants in Europe and the US. I think they are really doing a great job here. They have the three different products in their sort of core line. My favorite is social, but I think next time we're together, we'll have to try them all. I have a surprise. Oh, I've got three bottles of that sitting in my storage cupboard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Is that amazing? There's a non-alcoholic store in Holland. I think it might even be a chain called Nix and Nix, and they were kind enough to send me some so for once I've actually tasted these and I wish I could remember their names but there's one which is quite spicy which I liked yeah there's the livener and then there's the calming one the name escapes me but but yes taste those and maybe that will be one of your last calls so tell me what you're drinking this week well as usual I've got wine and now this was sent to me as a sample full declaration and uh, it's from Italy I tried a whole bunch of wines at the same time and the sort of the scourge of so many winemakers particularly in Tuscany is making wines in the international style and so when I opened this I was like oh here we go it's lovely it's the Castello di Quecetto e Picchio 2019 from Chianti Classico uh, and it's, I had to look them up I'd naturally never heard of them and I I'm turned out to be ashamed of this because they were one of the founders of the uh, the Chianti Classico Consorcio and the oh. Gran Selezione which was founded in 2014 to, as a sort of top tier and this wine is absolutely 
absolutely fantastic. I was cooking um, lamb when I was I was going through these bottles trying to find something to, to serve with dinner. And this one, it's got the beautiful sort of liveliness that that you know you can get with really high quality Sangiovese. But it's also yeah. it's bloody freezing where I'm at the moment. It's minus five degrees Celsius, which I don't know what that is in in American Fahrenheit. But I just accept the fact that it's extremely cold. <laughs> and so this was this was absolutely perfect. And I actually liked it so much, I thought I might actually go and buy some as well. So I, I looked up the price online. I realised what a great deal um, we get here. Where I live, there's no tax on wine, so it's twenty five euros a bottle here, but it's sixty three in the United States, unfortunately. Oh wow! So it's a very expensive bottle of wine, but for twenty five euros, it's a stunner. For sixty three. It's good, but for twenty five, if you if you go anywhere where it's twenty five, buy lots of it. Yeah, and I bet with lamb, it was delicious. It was fantastic. I love Chianti. I think lamb is a perfect pairing for that. I have such a, a fond, you know, nostalgic part in my heart for Chianti because it was my dad's favorite wine. Is that right? Yeah, and it was the one that he just, you know, there were producers he loved. He just had this like great love affair of going down the road of learning about Chianti, and it was like the one region that he really felt super passionate about. So every time I raise a glass of Chianti, I toast him in the sky. And uh, it's just, it's, that's one of the things that I love about wine is that for me, it just has that ability to like evoke nostalgia and emotion like no other beverage. Well, actually, one of my very earliest memories was being in a restaurant, which must be with my parents. And they had what I now know was one of those bottles of Chianti with the, you know, the the fiasco, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fiasco, yeah. That's my first restaurant memory ever. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that we both have these formative Chianti memories. That's so cool. Yeah, but anyway, so it's a terrific one. And um, just add this, I, I went and I was looking it up and there's not that many reviews written online about it, except the ones that I did read were for 10 years ago and they were scathing. People wrote incredibly rude things about this wine and I don't know whether they've changed the winemaker or whether those people just had taste up their ass or what the problem was, but it's a lovely wine. Okay, time for some investigative work on this and it seems like they need to get out there with some PR to spread the message that the wines are now delicious. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us today on the Business of Drinks. Follow us on Apple and Spotify or wherever you're listening and tap that notification button so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Also, please help us spread the word. Tap those star ratings and share on social. It truly helps us get noticed. And if there's something that you would like us to cover on the podcast, tell us. We're at podcast at businessofdrinks.com or contact us on LinkedIn. We want to hear from you and we really do respond to messages. See you soon.